Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charles Jackson and his nephew Houston Foster were born just two years apart, and they grew up together in the same house in Cleveland, as close as any two brothers could be. Even into their 50s, they still talked by phone several times a week, sometimes for hours, about everything under the sun. Houston had been diagnosed with stage 4 kidney failure, so he was undergoing dialysis three times a week and waiting, hoping for a kidney transplant. He was on the list, but as he told his uncle Charles, the wait could be up to five years. Who said I had that long to, you know, live? So by the grace of God, Charles came out and said, you know what, I'm old positive, nephew. I'm going to give you one of my kidneys. But there was a problem. Charles was in prison for murder and had been for nearly 30 years. My name is Charles Jackson. I served 27 years, six months, and 20 days for a crime I didn't commit. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Charles Jackson. Charles Jackson Jr. was born in Cleveland, Ohio on January 7, 1964, to Elizabeth Foster and Charles Jackson Sr., and they had a big family. I had sisters, I had like five sisters and three more brothers, you know, but I'm the, I'm the, the baby out the whole bunch. They was like teenagers, you know what I'm saying? So they were bigger and a couple of them was grown. And it was because of this age difference with some of his siblings that Charles became closest with his nephew, Houston. Charles and Houston did everything together, and everyone in their family adored Charles. Houston remembers how his uncle even earned himself a nickname. I think my grandmother, I think my grandmother, she named him Sweet Man. And I think that's where it actually came from. Just called him Sweet, that's what everybody knew him by, Sweet Man. 
But Charles describes himself another way. What's your personality? My personality? I'm silly as hell. (laughs) And, and, And all my friends, I just kept everybody laughing, everybody around me. When he was about nine years old, Charles's parents divorced. Charles decided to live with his dad, and for a while, it was just the two of them. But occasionally, Charles's sister and her son, Houston, came to live with them. Charles and Houston had always been like brothers, but living together, they were inseparable. And we used to run home from after school because he was in a, in a grade higher than me. And our goal was to get home from after school you know, do our homework, and then go watch Batman and Robin. So they started calling us Batman and Robin. Who was Batman and who was Robin? Well, you know, Charles had to be Batman. He would never let me be Batman. (laughs) Charles was like a typical older brother. But by the time he got to junior high school, things began to change. I fought a lot. I was overweight, chubby. I got bullied on. That next year I came to school, I slammed down. Nobody even knew me. That's when I started, I guess, maturing and growing up, you know what I'm saying? And that's when, like, my life turned, like, different, I guess. I started learning how to play cards, and then I had a lot of time on my hands because, you know, it was just me and my father, he'd be at work. So I get out, got out of school, and you know what I'm saying? So I got to do pretty much what I wanted to do. When he was around 18, Charles's son Christopher was born. He was married by then, and he and his wife at the time went on to have two more kids, twins, Terry and Sherry. I cooked and took care of the kids, you know what I'm saying? Like, coming from a big family, you you know, you're always in the kitchen, and somebody's always running through the house. And so I had all that too, you know what I mean? How'd you support your family at the time? Well, I was illegal (laughs) sometimes, but I didn't kill anyone, you know what I'm saying? Whatever I did, you know, hustled or... Murder wasn't wasn't even in the picture. In the early morning hours of April 7th, 1991, the body of 29-year-old Joe Travis was found in the hallway of his apartment complex, dead from a single gunshot wound to the head. There had been an altercation earlier at the complex between rival drug dealers, Charlie Dog Davis and Amelia Tucker. Tucker had allegedly shot at Davis, and as he left the complex, Davis yelled, quote, you shot me, I'll be back. About 45 minutes later, two men arrived, and two shots were fired. The men then vanished, leaving Joe Travis dead. Just over two weeks later, 23-year-old Ronald Lacey was arrested on drug charges. Lacey lived at the apartment complex, and he told police he had witnessed the gunman shoot Travis in the head over a drug altercation. He said that the shooter was a regular in the neighborhood and that he drove a 1978 or 1979 brown or maroon Monte Carlo with chrome wheels and lowrider tires. As it happened, 27-year-old Charles Jackson also drove a Monte Carlo and had recently had a run-in with the police. So I guess this is the same car that Ron Lacey said that I was driving, and the police had pulled me over maybe a month or two before then. And I had a traffic ticket, and I went to jail. So when I went to jail, they took mud shots on me. 
police had suspected Charles of carrying drugs that night. But finding nothing on him, they arrested him on a traffic violation instead. The cops showed Lacey the mugshot they took that night. And Lacey said, quote, That's definitely him. You don't forget someone that tries to kill you. A month after the shooting on May 8, 1991, Charles was arrested while sitting in a neighborhood bar. They put their guns on me. They asked me for my driver's license. They saw my name and said, I guess this him, and locked me up. So I had nothing to worry about because I didn't do anything. And three, four days later, you know, I was charged with murder. Yeah, Charles, when he got arrested and when he went down for, I was, you know, I missed my buddy because he was gone, you know. Charles's nephew, Houston, was devastated when Charles was taken into custody. I mean, it was, wow, that just brings back some memories there, buddy. It's touching, but I missed him so much, and what he went down for really touched me, because I knew my uncle had never, you know, commit no crime like that, because he would never do nothing like that. But that was my uncle, and wow. Charles, meanwhile, was racking his brain to remember what he was doing the night of that shooting. Wondering, like, where was I? You know what I'm saying? The alibi. What was I doing? And at the time, my girlfriend, she had kept a little little diary, you know what I'm saying, a little journal, and she used to write in there. And she had told me, like, that night, that was the night that we had went to a party. And then it started coming back. And um, I ran the streets that night, and I was out late. I ran from the police the same night. So I guess if I wouldn't have ran from the police, I would have been in jail the night that Joe Travis was murdered. You know, but I decided to run from the police. In Charles's mind, if he hadn't run from the police that night, he would have never been a suspect in the shooting. Before trial, Charles was assigned public defenders Edward Wade and Howard Maniger. Charles still remembers his lawyer's advice. Every way, he was just telling me, like, cop out, because, you know, I was, I've been a lawyer all these years, and all this stuff, like, they, they, they saying this and that, and, and, you know, I said, I didn't do anything, so why should I cop out to something I ain't do? So instead of taking a plea bargain from the get-go, Charles went to trial in December of 1991. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. The case against Charles relied solely on the witness testimonies of Ronald Lacey and Amelia Tucker. 
The prosecutors were Winston Gray and Thomas Rain. They called Lacey to the stand first. Lacey, the man who identified Charles's mugshot, repeated what he had told the police, that he saw Charles shoot Joe Travis in the head during an argument over drugs. The other witness was Amelia Tucker, who, remember, had had a separate altercation that night with Charlie Dog Davis. On the stand, Tucker said she heard the shots, and when she looked out the window, she saw the gunman running away, and she also said it was Charles. I'm sitting there just, and they tell me just don't show no emotion, and and I'm sitting there just like exploding on the inside, you know what I'm saying? Like, she's lying, I'm, I'm going crazy. Charles's defense did the best they could with these two eyewitnesses, whose testimonies were the only evidence presented against Charles. They countered with Charles's alibi. At the time of the shooting, he was at a party with his girlfriend. But they could have done more, it turns out. While Charles was in jail awaiting trial, he met a guy from the neighborhood named Vincent. Vincent told Charles he knew who shot Travis. He said it was a guy named Jimmy. This turned out to be James Morris, the nephew of Charlie Dog Davis. And this scenario would make sense. His nephew might have wanted to get back at Tucker for shooting at Charlie Dog. And Joe Travis, he could have just been caught in the crossfire. Armed with this new information and a plausible scenario, Charles immediately went to his lawyers. I told Ed Wade immediately that it's a guy in here that said he saw everything and he said it's not me that did it. But at trial, Charles' defense did not call Vincent to testify. Instead, they presented photos of James. And in the pictures, James looked nearly identical to Charles Jackson. So when Ronald Lacey was on the witness stand, so we come time to um, cross-examine him, Edward Wade had that one picture of James, and he showed this picture to Ronald Lacey and said, who is this on this picture? And Ronald Lacey looked at the picture, and he didn't hesitate. He said, this is a picture of Sweet Man. Sweet Man, the childhood nickname Charles was still known by. But many of the people in the courtroom knew the picture was of James. And I'm thinking like, oh, I'm finna go home now. You know, um, it finna just be fireworks because of this picture. And it wasn't nothing like that. It just got, it was like quiet. The alibi and mistaken identity was not enough. After only a few days of trial and deliberation, Charles was convicted of murder and attempted murder with a firearm. He was sentenced to 7 to 25 years for attempted murder, three years for possession of a firearm, and 20 years to life for the murder of Joe Travis. As Charles settled into prison life, he started resigning himself to the reality of being locked away forever. He knew too many other people who had faced the same situation. Only thing about prison is like, it just seemed like, like a rice of passage, like in my neighborhood growing up. Like, I saw so many guys that I haven't saw that I thought was dead or moved away, and they were in prison for years, you know what I mean? And it's just like, I knew people there, and they waiting on me, you know what I'm saying? They was going to take care of me. I was going to be all right. So I went in there with surviving on my mind. 
Charles knew, though, that in order to survive inside, he had to put up a pretty hard front. And what does surviving mean? Um, just, I'm not going to tell everybody I'm innocent because they don't want to hear that because they're doing all this time. And if I make them think that I'm not like them, then how can I survive? You know what I'm saying? So I should have went in there trying to find my way out. You know what I'm saying? I should have went in there going to the library. But like I said, I had a bad attitude. I was angry, you know, and I felt like they took my life, you know. So I'm just going to be like, no respect for no type of authority. And for like the first 10 years, you know what I'm saying, I ain't even recognize myself no more because I was turning to an animal. While Charles was in prison, his fourth child, a daughter, was born. Her name was Ciara. Were you able to be a dad from prison? It's crazy because, like, first, like, when she little and, and she don't know you, she, like, whole visiting day is spent with her trying to, like, not be scared of me, just sit on my lap or play with me. Then by, by the end of the day, she'd be wanting to play. Now it's time for her to go. Then I don't know when the next time I'm going to see her. And I see her again. She a little bit bigger. Got her personality in the change, you know what I'm saying? And I just watched her grow up like that, you know? And then it got to a part to where her mom, like, wasn't in my life. So she wasn't encouraging her. And Charles knew that without any encouragement, no 12- or 13-year-olds would want to spend their summers visiting someone in prison. So his visits with Ciara ended. As the years passed, things just kept getting worse. I started getting older, and like I said, I ain't, I ain't recognize who I was. And, and then my relatives started passing away, you know what I'm saying? And my mom died, and, and that was like when like my life like turned around because I felt I couldn't live like I was living no more, you know. Charles realized he needed to change his mindset in order to change his life. You know, I've been here so long, I wake up in the middle of the night and come up with a way to get out. I need somebody to listen to me, help me, you know what I'm saying? One thing that continued to sustain Charles during those years was his connection to his nephew Houston, the Robin to his Batman. Houston was now a deacon living in Jacksonville, Florida, and they talked by phone several times a week. But Houston was going through challenges of his own. At the age of 53, he learned that he had stage four kidney failure. And I told him I was O positive and I needed a kidney and I was going to get on the transplant list. But it might took two or three, five years to get a kidney. Who said I had that long to, you know, live? So he started off Dallas like once a week and then it got so bad to where he was in like three times a week. And I'd be talking to him while he beat her. And I said, man, I'm going to get up out of here, man. I'm going to give you a kidney, man. Is everything going to be good, you know? And not knowing what's going to happen. Charles knew he had to find a way to get out of prison. His nephew's life depended on it. Hey. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Determined to fight for his exoneration, Charles wrote to the Ohio Innocence Project to ask them to review his case. And when they did... Pretty quickly, we knew at the very least that the government's case against Charles back at the time of trial was really, really weak. Um, So we started to look at it more. This is Donald Castor. I'm a professor of clinical law with the Ohio Innocence Project at the University of Cincinnati. He's also Charles's attorney. The police seized on this theory that Charles might have been the guy because Charles's car was somewhere near the area. But it wasn't actually Charles's car. Remember, he drove a Monte Carlo similar to the one used by the shooter. The state also said that they had a credible witness. Um, and we'll put quotes around witness named Ron Lacey, who was there at the time and who said that, that he saw the fatal shot being fired. And, you know, put a single picture in front of Mr. Lacey and Mr. Lacey says, yeah, that's the guy. And that's that's how the police come to believe that it's Charles Jackson. 
Is is that even legal to just do one photo and not a lineup? It, it's not now. It's not now. At the time that Charles was convicted, there were no standards, at least, you know, sort of by statute for what kind of lineup you can do. Now Ohio has a statute that says if you're going to do a lineup, this is the way that you have to do it. Charles's team continued to dig into his case. In 2017, they were finally able to get a hold of previously undisclosed police reports. And what they learned was huge. Um, so these are all things that should have been turned over to Charles's defense at the time of trial that would have made a huge difference, that would have saved Charles all these years in prison. So we're talking about Brady violations. We are talking about Brady violations. Brady violations are exactly that. When the prosecution hides or fails to disclose evidence favorable to a defendant. And the reports revealed plenty of this. The first piece of evidence? Well, Ms. Tucker said one thing at trial. She had said a very different thing the night of the shooting and the day after the shooting to the police. And what she had told the police was that she couldn't see the face of the person who did the shooting, that she wasn't going to be able to identify the shooter. Remember, Omelia Tucker was the rival drug dealer who was in the initial altercation. Her first statement to police said that she looked out her window and saw a man wearing a bulky jacket get into the rear passenger seat of a gray car. His back was to her and she did not see his face. In a second interview, she repeated the same thing to police, that she did not see a face. Yet when she testified at trial, she said she saw the shooter's face and that it was Charles. And obviously you'd want to know that their key eyewitness said twice within 36 hours of the shooting, I didn't see the person's face. I can't tell you who did it. You'd want to be able to ask that person about those statements in front of a jury. And, and Charles never got that chance. The second piece of evidence. Mr. Lacey had made the statement that the shooter had shot the decedent on the wrong side of the head, that, that he identified the shot as going one place, the coroner identified the shot as going the other. The defense at the time of Charles's trial never knew these things. Not only that, there were more eyewitnesses to the crime that were never called to testify. One of them was a man named Thomas Salvano. Mr. Salvano saw it. He saw what happened, and there was a, a statement in the, the records by him, but he never... He never gets called. He never, nobody on Charles's side knows what Salvano knows, which is that he saw it and it wasn't Charles. Um, and then we had a private investigator go and, and talk to Salvano, who was amazingly eager to help out. You know, he didn't have any reason personally to want to help Charles, but he really was, was stunned um, that the wrong person had been in prison for that whole time. And he really felt like he had a duty to, to help out. When Charles's attorneys presented him with all this information, he finally felt vindicated. Man, it was like, it was, they believe me. You didn't do this, you know what I'm saying? And when somebody just believed in you, you know what I'm saying? We already thought you didn't do it, but now we know you didn't do it. That's not, I was like, okay, cool. If I, if I died that night, you know what I'm saying? I knew that someone knew that I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't alone no more. You know what I'm saying? I had a voice again.
In 2018, Charles was granted a hearing to present all this newly discovered evidence to a judge. Judge Robert McClelland felt the evidence was compelling enough to sign an order vacating Charles's convictions. He ruled that Charles should get a new trial. Months later, Donald Castor was driving to Cleveland for a hearing in Charles's case when he got a call. The prosecutor called me on my cell phone. Um, so I had, to, I had to pull over because I'm starting to cry. He immediately called the rest of the team, who were also on their way to the hearing. So, okay, you guys need to pull over before I tell you this. Um, and then I said, you know, they're, they're going to concede, and it's because Lacey's backed away from his story at, at the time of trial. Ronald Lacey, the star witness and first person to implicate Charles, was suddenly changing his story. Um, and he said that they had re-interviewed Mr. Lacey and that Mr. Lacey had backed away from saying that he saw the fatal shot being fired. Without Lacey, the state didn't have a case. Tucker had been discredited by this time, and there was never any physical evidence to begin with. On November 27, 2018, 55-year-old Charles Jackson was released after almost 28 years in prison. Though at first, officials got the right name, but the wrong person. They brought the wrong, they brought the wrong Charles out at first. Right. Yeah. You know they brought so, the wrong Charles Jackson not, out? Not only was, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, for somebody had do. Yeah, we, wait, 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 wait was this guy like, oh, I guess it's my time? Um, and we had to, we had to tell, we were like, wait, we don't, <laughs> this is not our Charles. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny, but it ain't funny, but. You know what I'm saying? They got the wrong one in, and now they try to let the wrong one out. I mean, come on. After the snafu, and after the right Charles Jackson was released, the day was joyous for everyone. But Houston was still in need of a kidney, and Charles, now a free man, was on a mission. Once it was confirmed that he was a match, he headed down to Florida, where his nephew was waiting. And, uh... He gave me kidney and everything. But I, I thank God for him because I don't know, you know, where I'd be. I might not have been here today, but it wasn't for the blessing that he gave to me. But it, you know, he was more than like my brother. He was like, a, he was like a hero because even though they said he took a life, but he didn't take no life. He helped save a life, so to me, that's a hero to me. He was just a blessing to me. <laughs> Excuse me. Today, Charles lives in a quiet suburb of Cleveland in a communal house known as the Exoneree Home. So it started off like it was just a house, you know what I'm saying? Now, it, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a home now. So what is that like to live with other Exonerees? Do you feel like they understand you better than other people might? They definitely do because everybody else, like, you know, being in jail for so long, didn't come out here is like, it's, you dropped me from, I can't, could have been from another planet or something. 
So nobody understand what you went through, except for another person who been through the exact same thing. So that's what formed that, that brotherhood, you know, exonerees, like, we a different kind. We take care of each other, you know. When Charles first got to the exoneree home, he took special care of one of his older housemates. Isaiah Andrews was wrongfully convicted of murder in 1974. He was exonerated in 2021 at the age of 84, and he died less than a year later, right after he was awarded compensation by the city of Cleveland for his wrongful imprisonment. These days, Charles spends a lot of his time advocating for the wrongfully incarcerated and cooking for his friends and housemates at the exoneree home. He's just completed a culinary training course and has ambitions to open his own food truck. Although, as his nephew Houston tells it, Charles wasn't always a foodie. When me and Charles was coming up, Charles wouldn't eat anything. You know what I'm saying? He had, if my grandmother cooks a home-cooked meal, Charles had to go to McDonald's or Burger King because he wouldn't eat. So this is how Charles was. But me, I used to watch my mother and my grandmother and them cook all the time. Houston even comes and helps out in the kitchen at the exoneree home. I'm not going to say I can cook better than Charles, but I get Charles to run for his money. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it ain't all about who can cook better than who. You're right. But like I tell him, I say, Robin can cook better than Batman. You might can do something better than me, but I can cook better than you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. No. Oh, yeah. We, we cook. You definitely could. You can definitely get something to eat at the Zonnery House. If you want to donate to the Exoneree Home, go to x-freedomstudio.org. You'll find that link in our bio, along with other ways to help support Charles. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Amelia Bird. Did you ever ask Chad to kill your parents? No. I wanted my dad to leave my mom alone and me alone, but I didn't want him dead. Thanks for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, producer Lila Robinson, and story editor Sonia Paul. The show is edited and mixed by Annie Chelsea, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.